uh, the fun part about the story is that Andy is himself, of course, an HBS grad. So uh, it's great to have you back here. It's fun to be here. Uh, and it's hard to believe that in seven years you've, you've done all that. But uh, let's, let's wind the clock back a little bit and talk a little bit about, you know, what was the inspiration for AWS and how did it get going? Yeah. Well, there were a few things going on, I would say, in the 2000 to 2003 timeframe that led us ultimately to deciding to pursue it. The, the, the first thing was that we were doing an assessment ourselves as the leadership, senior leadership team about what Amazon was really good at. And, uh, you know, initially, you can imagine what we were talking about. We were good at, at retail, we were good at um, detail pages on our retail site, we, all the things that were the primary business at that time. But as we dug deeper, we realized we were really good at running these infrastructure services deep in the stack. And then we were also really good at running these reliable, scalable, cost-effective data centers. So the first realization we had was that we actually had a real core competence in running infrastructure. The second thing around that time that was happening was we started doing these very large partner, uh, merch, partner deals on the e-commerce side that we called Merchant.com, where right. we do these deals with Target or Toys R Us or Marks and Spencer, where all of their website was powered by Amazon technology. And when we went to deliver the solution to Target, which was really the first big one that used all of our technology that way that was on their website, it was uh, much harder than any of us thought it would be. And right. that's because in the first 10 years of Amazon, we had entangled a bunch of pieces of our platform that we wished we hadn't. And so in disentangling that and providing that to Target, we really got religion in the, in the company about building in a service-oriented architecture fashion, very loosely coupled. And it really permeated all of the teams such that we had goals for the teams that they had to have well-documented APIs that were hardened so that each of the internal teams inside Amazon could use those respective services to build applications. Right. Right. That was a real cultural shift. I think the third thing was I was working in, in 2002 and 2003. Amazon was growing really fast. We were adding a lot of engineers, and software projects were taking us much longer than we anticipated. And at the time, I was working for Jeff Bezos as his, uh, what we called his shadow at the time. And it was really like a chief of staff role. And he asked me if I'd try to help figure out what was going on. And when I would talk to product development leaders, they'd say, look, I know you guys think these projects should take two to three months end to end, but I'm spending two to three months just on the storage solution or mm -hmm. just on the database solution or just on the compute solution. And what they were building didn't scale beyond their own project. And they knew that you know, multiple people on other projects were doing the same thing. And that was a very interesting realization for us that there was all this reinvention of the wheel inside Amazon and there was this real thirst for infrastructure services. And uh, I think if we had never built AWS and opened it externally, that we would have built all these services just to allow Amazon, the retailer, to move more quickly. And then the fourth thing was, we have this associates business, which is part of our retail business, which allows third-party websites to merchandise Amazon retail products, and if it leads to a sale, they earn about a 5% commission. And that team was trying to figure out how to be more ubiquitous across the million associate websites they had. And they tried a million, not a million, several uh, um, tests. And one of the tests they tried was they just took all the product data, the you know the product title, the pricing, the availability, yep. et cetera. They put all that in, a, in an API, and they thought if they could decouple the data from the presentation, that associates would do more with the data than we had time to or would think of. And that led to much better conversion for those that used it. But what really surprised us was with no promotion, 
thousands of thousands of developers flocked to these APIs. And they used them for things we didn't necessarily anticipate them using them for. And they asked us to open up all kinds of parts of our platform that we hadn't really contemplated. And so all those things came together really in mid-2003. And we took this step back and we said, well, if you believe that developers and businesses will build applications from scratch on top of these web services, which people call the cloud now, um, then it, the operating system becomes the internet, which right. was a really different model than before. And then we said, well, okay, if, if you can believe there's going to be an internet operating system, what are the key components, what's been built, and what will we be good at contributing to? And when we looked at that in mid-2003, none of the key elements of that internet operating system had been built yet. And when we thought about what we were good at, and Amazon's always been a technology company at its heart, one that applied it to retail first, but always a technology company, we realized we could contribute many of those pieces of that internet operating system. And with that, we decided to pursue this much broader you know, mission, which was to enable developers and businesses to be able to use these web services to build any sophisticated, scalable application they wanted. You know what's fantastic about listening to you is that you probably just gave us seven case examples right there. <laughs> uh, so I'll try to draw out some yeah. of them for the benefit of the class. You know, one of the things that's really interesting is it's very clear from day one you were trying to solve a real problem. I mean, and it, you obviously identified initially with some customers that you were trying to service, and then it sounded like it, it morphed into, well, internally you were struggling to meet those needs, yeah. and it sounds like you dug deep to try and understand why and what was the set of challenges for your internal developers, and so that pain and need became real. Yeah. And then you, you did something else, which you know we talk about in our uh, you know product classes and in our business model classes, which is that you, you created an internal customer for yourself, which sounds you know so dead on. We, we talk about eating your own cooking and right. and co-creation, drinking and, your own champagne. Actually, that's a much better way of saying because in my case the cooking is definitely not right. good. So <laughs> I'm in for the champagne. That sounds right. a lot better to me. So I, I love all those lessons, but but there must have also been some point at which somebody had an insight to start to think about this external possibility. Uh, and that, that's always something entrepreneurs are very keen to know about. What was the insight and, and how did that moment happen? Yeah, it, you know, it really wasn't, I can tell you the moment, but it wasn't, it's not dramatic. Yeah. Uh, in the same way that uh, I often feel that um, uh, you, you had very gracious things to say about me in the introduction, I appreciate that, but it, it, you know, I always feel like uh, any one person who's associated with it gets too much credit, it's, okay. it's, it's always, a lot of conversations and a team that's thinking it, th thinking it through. And then all the best ideas don't matter if you can't execute. And, and that's really that's a team so effort. Well but but I, I think that um, uh, we, were, we were starting to think about this as a way to move faster internally. And we had a meeting. There were, there were probably about six or seven us, of us in the room. And at a certain point, I don't, I don't even remember who said it, one of us said, well, you know, we're pretty good at this. You know, we have, we have a really strong uh, um, technology team inside Amazon. And if, if we're having so many problems with this and we don't have anything we can use externally, mm -hmm. I imagine lots of other companies probably have the same problem. And that was a time actually that was in, it was in mid-2003 and it was a time also when I was uh, uh, moving out of the shadow role I was in to the next role I was going to think about. And Jeff had kind of tasked me with finding my own role, and, uh, which is interesting and, uh, to do. And, and uh, you know, as we had that realization that we thought that external companies would find this very compelling as well, uh, I, you know, I decided I would try and write a business plan and a proposal about it. And so 
that's really how it happened. And I don't know if others find this, but I found that I had a certain belief about it that was interesting and intriguing to me, but I became much more excited about it as I wrote the plan. Right. Because as you yeah. do more research, as you talk to more customers internally, it's super helpful inside a company. You have a lot of customers Absolutely. who are demanding, who will give you, you know, opinions and tell you what's wrong. And as I talked to some of our, our some of the external folks who were using the associates business, who were more technical, who I thought might use these services, you just got the sense that it was a real need and that they didn't like the existing business model and, and choices they had. And, uh, and the more that we kind of wrote the plan, the more we thought this could be really compelling. And so what's interesting about listening to that is that obviously you took a bold move to, to write that plan, but you know, like all good entrepreneurs, you didn't just assume it was a plan you could execute from, you went and validated it. So how much did you balance the internal validation of your own engineers versus going out and getting out of the building and figuring out who really was going to get into yeah, this? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would say that we, we did both, mm -hmm. but we there's no question we did more internal validation than external validation because it was just easier access. We, we were Once we wrote the plan and we got excited about it and then we started really talking to a lot of customers about it, potential customers about it, we felt like we were sitting on this secret. <laughs> Even, and we weren't really sure it was a secret, but we felt like it was a secret. Yeah. And we really didn't want to let anybody know we were working on it because we were probably not at that time the most obvious provider to do it. And we really felt like to be successful, we had to be a first mover. Yeah. And so we uh, fortunately have a lot of, you know, we have hundreds of development teams inside of Amazon who were very happy to talk to us. We did something different, um, which was at times very frustrating but ultimately very fruitful, which was we took 10 of our best technology uh, minds and 10 of our best um, product management minds and we locked ourselves in a room for about a week and we went through about 10 applications, some of which were the biggest internet applications out there and some of which were applications we thought should exist but didn't. And when we tried to decompose them and say, well, what would you need if you were actually going to build these from scratch on top of these services. Yep. And that what was really helpful about that was that it helped us refine which were the first ones we should build. Because right. the same ones kept coming. It turns out everybody needs compute. And it turns out everybody needs storage. And it turns out almost everybody needs a database. You know, so it, that was very helpful as well. So we did both. We were very careful externally to pick people that we knew and trusted. And, and, uh, and that also we thought would give us honest and, and thoughtful feedback. So now I want to step back a little bit because one of our first conversations, which was so much fun at this point, was you obviously started to create something of a business unit inside of Amazon. So you were really being an entrepreneur in the true sense of that word. What were some of the guiding principles that you established? I mean, it came across so clearly in your you know, introduction that there's some very strong culture at Amazon and things yeah. like putting the customer at the center and then thinking about value and really trying to differentiate around that and low cost and so forth. But as you started thinking about AWS, did you just take that forward or did you decide there were some other cultural principles to add to? I would say that um, largely we took the Amazon culture and leadership principles and applied them here and we made sure we executed them well. But you know, there were some differences. But first I'll start with the Amazon. Amazon is a very strong culture. I, mean, I think yep. most companies that, um, that are successful, the culture matters a lot. Oh, yeah. and, Absolutely. And so, we have 14 leadership principles that everybody at the company knows. It's how we review, performance review everybody. And uh, I would say that the thing that new people who join Amazon often tell me is the most surprising is just 
how much everybody lives to those leadership principles. Yep. And, it's that consistency. And there is, and, and, uh, and you, you, know, you hear them very consistently from Jeff all the way down. And, yep. and so I, I heard some of them in some of the uh, videos that you showed earlier, yep. but um, you know, so, so a lot of those applied. Uh, you know, everything we do starts with the customer and moves backwards from there. We have, we're very long-term oriented in Amazon. We're, we're careful about which things we choose to bet, in, uh, bet on. But the things we bet on, we don't expect them to pay back in 12 to 18 months, and if they don't, stop. Yep. You know, we're make, we're, we think we're planting seeds that will become trees in five to seven years down the road. We have very aggressive milestones and goals you know, every step along the way. I'm but smiling, we really, by the way, because this, this is sort of the number one thing we always sit talk about, <coughs> is if you're going to start a company, it takes five to seven years. Yeah. So for you to be saying that, even as Amazon, is just, you know, music to our ears here. Well, you, you do have to have that patience because uh, it, if you're doing something big and new, you don't know how Absolutely. the customers are going to respond to it. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we, we, we had, so we were very customer focused, we were long-term oriented, um, we were trying to build a business that, um, uh, where we built long-term customer relationships and weren't just optimizing for any short-term uh, um, piece. And then, you know, we wanted, we wanted people who were very passionate. We wanted people who um, uh, were hungry and ambitious. We wanted people who had a very high bias for action because we feel, you know, I th any startup I think really needs to move fast. You, Absolutely. Know, you move slow and, you know, you, you're going to miss the opportunity. We wanted high judgment people. Um, we wanted people with really high standards, and that's a really important cultural and leadership value inside of Amazon. We, the, the, the way we write the leadership principle is that you have un, you know, high standards, almost unreasonably so. Yeah. And I think that as a leader of a, you know, whether it's a startup or a larger business, if you don't set the right expectations about what the standards should be, the people you hire won't have them, and as you get larger, the people they hire and those Absolutely. people hire just, all of a sudden you find that you don't have the right standards inside the organization. And so that was very important as well. And, uh, um, and we wanted, we actually also wanted a mix of people who had deep technology experience um, and infrastructure experience, but we also wanted people who weren't pickled already. You know, in, yeah. in, in the beginning yeah. of doing this business, uh, we had one of my very, very best, most senior technology people uh, who's super smart and has turned out to be unbelievably helpful and, and, and important in our business. But, you know, I used to spend like an hour therapy session almost uh, in the early days um, trying to um, make sure that, uh, that he and the rest of the team really believed because it was, much, it was a much easier path, as this person used to argue, for us to just do the e-commerce APIs I mentioned that were like yeah. the associate's yeah. business. And the reasoning was very sound. That's what we know. That's what we're good at. Yeah. Um, you know, are people going to ever buy storage from us? Are people ever going to buy compute from us? You know, are people going to ever buy database from us? And those were very real concerns. But you know, you want people who believe it's possible and believe you can change the world and see it from a different vantage point to be mixed with the people who have a lot of that deep experience inside the industry. So that's what we were looking for. Again, it's, it's great if I could just draw out a couple of things yeah. for the class and, and make sure that I haven't missed anything that you communicated there. But, but it's obvious, you, you know, you developed a, a framework from the existing culture to, to bring forward uh, that was still consistent. So it obviously didn't, you know, miss some of the core values. But then you also said some key things. I mean, you, you realized that this was a vision you had that had, was not proven. I mean, it couldn't be. Nobody had even thought of it. 
And we often talk about this, you know, you have to have that vision. It's so important to establishing the premise to get people excited. And another thing you said here, which you know, we talk a lot about in the hiring session, is you know, it's great to have experience, knowledge, and skills, but sometimes it gets in the way. It actually is great to get the fresh out of school kids who basically don't know what's not possible and therefore try everything. Yep. And that combination is such a wonderful uh, combination. I, I don't yep. know whether that sort of yep. mirrors your right. experience. So what did you do in terms of hiring? Did you decide you'd only recruit internally or did you go external too to, to create this? Well, we, you know, I remember when we made our ask for um, the initial team uh, to the senior leadership team, we asked for 57 people. And I felt like that was one of the ballsiest asks I'd ever made. You know, I, I was really scared about making that ask. Don't because, come to the VCs and ask for right. 57 at day one, by the way. It, it was, uh, <laughs> you know, and it, it, for, for really just an idea on a piece of paper at that yeah. point. We, you know, at Amazon, we don't do PowerPoint presentations. It's part of why I'm so, you know, uh, primitive with a lot of my PowerPoint presentations. Um, everything, all the communication, all the meetings are narratives, and yeah. the, the six-page max, and so I had written this this vision document and then asked for this 57 people and we um, we were really uh, we felt really strongly that we should either build a platform with multiple services like this or we shouldn't do it because there was right. there was some debate there that said well why don't you just build S3 yeah. and see if that works and then if it works then you can talk about getting more resources to build other products and which by the way is a completely rational uh, approach yeah. line, approach and line of thinking but we really felt strongly that just one storage service when, you're, when you want to provide an infrastructure platform wouldn't be enough and it would take too long after having that and proving that it was successful to build the second service that would provide an opportunity for somebody to move faster and catch up faster. So we, uh, that's why we asked for that number of people and uh, to, to Amazon's credit and to Jeff's credit, um, they, he really didn't bat an eyelash. He, 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 you know, they believed in the potential of it long term and, and we pursued it. And if you're gonna hire 57 people, you, it's pretty hard if you're gonna grab good people who are usually gainfully employed and, and, and the company's growing like that to take 57 internal people. So right, right. We, uh, we took as many good internal people as um, we could do uh, without hurting the business, uh, and, but the vast majority of them ended up being external people that we hired. And as you brought them in, I mean, that vision obviously was a key part of it, but what were some of the other things that you were looking for in those early hires? What were some of the attributes or things that you used to make those hiring decisions? A lot of the same things I mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, I think that um, there were some people that we were looking for certain experience sets that were useful in our space. Um, but I would say, you know, we wanted people who were smart. We wanted people who were really analytical. We wanted people who had high standards. We wanted people who were, um, who were both passionate and optimistic that they could change the world because we knew what we were gonna do was hard yeah. and we knew that you had to believe and we knew it would take some time to actually build the services. And so we wanted people who would stick it out and really you know, uh, uh, be excited to stay the course. Um, we, uh, um, I'd say that we, we also, uh, we wanted people who were tenacious. We, we screen for tenacity. We talk about that a lot in our hiring debriefs because, again, um, it's hard to get something going. And inside the company, even though I think Amazon was unbelievably gracious uh, um, yeah. to, uh, to AWS, there were some people who didn't believe inside the rest of the company. For and sure. 
who uh, in the early days um, you know, didn't move fast to help us move fast. And you needed people who were not going to allow themselves to be victims. Right, so right. we wanted people who were tenacious. Um, and then we wanted, you know, we, we wanted entrepreneurial people. Uh, it, it's um, sometimes when you get to a company who's grown to a certain size, you get too many people in that company who mm -hmm. are content to move slow and don't feel this constant closing window. And we didn't want those people. We wanted people who were really hungry to build something new and who felt real urgency. Uh, we liked people who had been at um, startups or startups inside of companies that hadn't worked, and, but who, who were self-aware about what hadn't worked and what they could have done better and what they learned from it. And then I, one of, one of the things that's most important to me and that I really believe is one of the differentiating features of people at all levels and how fast they move, they move yeah. is um, is whether they're really good learners. Yeah, and, absolutely. And I think that people that think they have they have figured it all out yeah. just don't learn at the pace that you need to. And yeah. we have a belief inside Amazon that all of our businesses, even our retail business, which we've been at the longest is in the really early stages. Uh, and people, I think, mistakenly assume that that game is mature and done. It's, it's really it's very early. It's single digits of penetration. Right, right. and yeah. so, I mean, it's a big market. And you're right, it's single digit penetration. And, and uh, if you don't believe you have a lot to learn and you're not self-aware and hungry to learn, you're gonna very quickly find yourself uh, no longer relevant. And so we wanted people who didn't feel like they'd figured it out, and now we're just applying it to this. We wanted people right. who felt like they were going to continually learn. It's funny, I, I'm fond of saying that the older I get, the more I realize I have to learn, because you get more aware of what, what you just right. don't know. Right. Uh, but that self-awareness is another characteristic we talk a lot about, and I think it makes a big difference. Yeah, I agree. Well, that's a great intro. So now you've, you've got your vision, and you obviously have sold that internally. You've kind of raised your <laughs> for like internal capital to do that. You've gone out, you've started hiring your team. How did you start to formulate, at that point, the core of the value proposition? Uh, well, we had, you know, in proposing the business, we had some theories, and so when we went, we really went and tried to validate it as right. much as we could internally and um, discreetly externally, and, you know, we found a bunch of things that seemed to resonate for people. Uh, it's um, inside Amazon, they would have told you the most important thing was to be able to be unblocked, um, move faster, autonomous. Uh, they cared about cost. They wanted the cost to be, you know, at least as good as what they had. Mm -hmm. But inside Amazon, they just felt like they were moving so much slower than they wanted to. And, yeah. and to the external world, I think they were probably moving fast. But there is this perpetual angst inside Amazon of moving faster. So that was very uh, interesting, um, and it, it helped us think about the fact that um, if, even though we knew over time we'd want to build. Uh, abstractions further up that made it much easier to use. A lot of the development teams that were going to do anything at scale wanted APIs. Yep. You know, and, yep. and they wanted to basically build services that programmatically consume those APIs. Yep. So that was very helpful in having us start um, so you at really, the IPA, API level. And you really started using the internal custom to validate that very They clearly. were all using our services before yep. anybody else. Yep. Um, we had, you know, uh, Kind of interestingly, as, as a, a matter of historic fact, the very first external beta user for EC2, which is our compute service, was Paul Moritz. Hmm. Paul uh, was running this small startup called Pi, which oh, eventually yeah. got bought by EMC. And, yeah. and, uh, and Paul and his team were incredibly helpful in, in helping us understand which things worked in EC2 the way we originally envisioned it and which things didn't. And so 
You know, that, that's what we really did. We, we heard over and over again from customers that, especially external customers, that they really hated this model of you had to, you know, you basically had to commit to three years, yep. you, you know, you had to commit to a certain amount, you never really yep. knew how much to commit to, you had to provision for the peak, and then if it turned out you didn't use the peak, there was all this breakage, and they just felt ripped off. And So, so the core was really this elasticity right from the get-go. Elasticity was one of the things that we realized quickly could differentiate. Yep. Um, and yep. so, uh, that was another piece that really mattered. Um, you know, we heard over and over again internally and externally that they wish they didn't have to manage their own infrastructure. You know, people yeah. would say things like, it would be great if I didn't have to do that and you could do that. And yeah. we couldn't tell, you know, sometimes you never know when people say that if they if they really will do it yeah. or whether they're just saying that and then you have it and, you know, then... Then you've got to get know, a check from them. Yeah, so, <laughs> um, right, like, the, like one of the entrepreneurs was saying. And exactly. so, you know, we would ask questions, you know, like, uh, how much would you pay for something like that? And yep. they wouldn't give an answer. And we'd, you know, we'd be persistent about trying to get a ballpark. And we got a sense pretty quickly that we could provide it a lot less expensively than what they were paying. So that was encouraging to us that we thought we could be disruptive pricing-wise. Yeah. Um, so those were some of the things that, that came together quickly as we were building out the services. And then you know you build, like everybody, you build some of the ways that you're going to market the services. Well, you say like everybody, but it's it's not that obvious to some people. So. Let's talk a little bit about that in a moment. But there was obviously a, a core set of things you started to validate. And it sounds like, again, just listening to you earlier as you were talking about AWS, that there's a core cultural belief that you really should innovate quickly and test and validate quickly, which yep. is a key thing that all startups need to do. So can you talk a little bit about how you started to do that while you were trying to be in stealth mode? That must mm -hmm. be quite interesting. How, how we started to Yeah, how did you get the external validation to... Uh, well, <laughs> we, again, we, we picked the external customers we picked we picked people that we felt like we knew well. It's funny in retrospect with Paul um, because uh, he's gone on to work at companies that compete with us, but uh, um, Paul was um, good friends with, the original team that built EC2 was a development center in Cape Town, South yep. Africa. Yep. Paul is South African and one of the guys who was senior on that team had a relationship with Paul, so we yep. knew Paul and, and, uh, and trusted Paul. And so we, we just picked people that we thought were Highly technical. Would you consume these services that we could trust to not, you know, disclose the information? And then they were really gracious with their time in us pestering them to some degree on uh, um, what they wanted, and then you know, trying our various private betas and prototypes and things of that sort. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have again, I, I've been, I've seen teams that ask for the feedback and don't really listen to it. Right, which seems right. crazy, yeah. right? but it's, it's not part. intentional a lot of times. I think it's that sometimes you have such a strong vision and it's, it, you know, it's hard to hear that that vision needs to be adjusted. It's painful and yeah. it's time yeah. consuming yeah. and it's going to take longer. And you really do have to try and hear what people are saying and, and be willing to adjust. And so we, uh, the, again, that's a good cultural piece of Amazon, which is we really listen carefully to customers and we try to ask questions that we don't just accept the first thing we hear, we, we ask further questions to see if that's what they really meant or did they mean more something like this. And, yep. and uh, so that's, that's really how we did it, trying to be, you know, at the same time, trying to build teams and, and iterate quick. We said a couple of very important things there. You know, this vision concept is, is not one that's held up on high. It's really just an opportunity to understand the marketplace. So we often try to talk in the classes about how do you build a vision for the market? not just about your product or service, because otherwise you get, as you say, right. locked in too quickly. And in fact, what you really want to do is get the validation coming back to find out whether anything 
is really going to resonate with that customer. And yep. that's the starting point for something to become, obviously, you know, meaningful. Yep. So as you started to do that, as you, you mentioned, you, you started to formulate the go-to-market. So can you talk a little bit about how you thought about that initially? Did, did you think it was immediately going to be something you would just direct sell? Were you going to just evangelize it from the developers? Yeah, I, I, I'm going to answer that one sec. But I'm gonna, one other thing on the last topic yeah. that I think might yeah. be interesting is, but it was also very helpful for us not getting too locked into our vision, was yeah. that we have um, this way that we do product development at Amazon, which is that the first thing we do is we write a press release and an FAQ. Right. Before we write any lines of code, that's the first thing we do. And that's the great. press release is intended to, you know, it's supposed to be a real press release, and it's intended to make sure that the benefits that you're articulating actually matter right. and are meaningful. And, right. and we use that with customers so that they can see what we're saying the value proposition is to see if they say, that's awesome, or if they say, oh, okay. And then the FAQ is um, to be the how of how we're going to build the service, how it's going to work, what architecture is going to be underneath, um, what features will exist, et cetera. And that's really intended for us to flesh out what the service is and, and the decisions we need to build it up front so that once we decide, once we're done with that, it allows our development teams to just go build. Yep. And, you know, there's nothing worse for development teams, in my opinion, for them to believe this is the product and then to get way down the road and then have people flip it around on them. It's yep. very demoralizing. It's, it resets the clock. There's a yeah. lot of wasted time. If you can get that input up front, you can actually just deliver much more quickly. And when we first started to employ that in AWS, a lot of the teams hated it um, because it was a relatively new concept at Amazon at that time. Mm -hmm. And I had worked on it a lot with Jeff when I was um, working as a shadow. And uh, they, oh, you know, we make them go through it three, four, five times. It's taking so much time. It's slowing us down. We just want to start building. Can't we do the prototype? Yeah. And we were really vigilant about it. And what we found was that it actually allowed us to move much faster yeah. because the few services that got built around the company at that time that didn't go through that process had huge resets um, halfway through and they ended up shipping much slower. So that also allowed us, we could take that press release and FAQ out to internal customers and to the external customers we trusted and, and said, what do you think? And that gave them, it was more than just a high level PowerPoint, it was really detailed yep. and they could tell us exactly what resonated and what didn't and which features mattered and which didn't because we had to make decisions on what would be in V1 and what didn't. So now the go to market question. Well actually yeah. let me pause you there because you just said something there that to my mind was really excellent and very different to hear uh, how we hear many startups start. I mean there's so much emphasis on you know, create a minimum viable product and develop this set of capabilities, et cetera, and there's not enough emphasis on exactly where you started, which is where most people come to, you know, to, to be challenged. And that is, you right away said, well, wait a second, let's just write what our messaging and positioning is going to be and validate upfront what is the roadmap that we're going to have to deliver on yep. before we even write anything. Yep. And, and as you said, you know, you've proven it. When that happens, every engineer who makes a thousand decisions below the radar can get on with a very clear roadmap and be productive. And you know at the end of it, you're going to be able to engage your marketplace. Yeah, you hope. Uh, you hope. <laughs> well, but at least you've validated right. it on, up, on the upfront. Whereas, yeah. of course, we see way too often, you know, as I was describing earlier on, you know, the product's looking great, but it's in isolation of where it's actually going to have impact yeah. and going to get traction. We so got great. there in part because in the early, I'd say from maybe 97 to, to maybe 2001 at Amazon, we had some of these ideas that were great high-level ideas, yeah. but 
we get later and later into the product and we do these reviews and we'd say, so say again why this is really that meaningful and you'd hear it and you'd, be, you'd think, well, I don't know, it doesn't sound that important, yeah. you know, that <laughs> meaningful, and, which is terrible for the team to hear. Absolutely, and, and so uh, That's really the, you know, a lot of the value we get too is that it forces teams to be really crisp about what matters and it lets us argue about it and lets us keep improving it until we get to a point where we have something, we think we have something meaningful. That's great. Yeah. So back to the go-to-market. Uh, so how do we form a go-to-market go plan? Yeah. Uh, that was an interesting experience too, and, and uh, I don't know if we would consider us ourselves, you know, having done an expert job of it or not. But we had a lot of argument about it. Uh, about you know, should we um, should we try and go pursue enterprises um, or startups or mid-market? Um, should we, you know? What's, what's the uh, advertising and the broad awareness campaign? And um, what we ultimately decided when we, you know, when, as we were building this press release in FAQ, we felt like we, had, we didn't identify it as elegantly as you did in, on your slide of that MVS. Yep. But we felt like we had a product that had an MVS, um, yep. uh, which was we really could imagine you know, the spectrum of uh, startups and enterprises and public sector companies using these services because they all had those infrastructure needs yep. and they weren't being particularly well served um, and we thought this was a differentiated approach. But we pretty consciously, early on after we got through those debates, decided that we really wanted to target to begin with um, startups. And the reason was uh, a fewfold. First of all, the uh, like one of your um, CEOs said, the, the sales cycles on enterprises and public sector are really long. Yep. And uh, we, we started AWS with one salesperson. And so we, we didn't have salespeople you know, to really spend long cycles on, uh, on uh, long sales cycles. The, the second reason is when you're trying to, um, when you're trying to advance a technology that's a pretty disruptive shift, it's very often the smaller companies and the entrepreneurs that adopt it first. Yeah, the innovators. Right, and some of it is because their alternatives are not as good as you know very large capitalized uh, um, enterprises, but also they just tend to be more entrepreneurial and more Absolutely. lean forward. And we felt like we had this model in our heads that we used to talk about, which was that we wanted uh, um, a single student in his or her in his or her dorm room to have access to the same scalability and the same price or cost structure for infrastructure as the largest enterprises in the world. That's the right. way we were thinking about it. And we felt like that would be powerful if we could do that. And um, so that's who we really spent our time trying to attract. And, and so then we put tactics together or, and strategies together on, on how we could reach that, um, that group of customers. And some of that, you know, one of the things that we also liked about that um, group of customers is that they tend to blog a, a lot. Yeah. Um, they tend to um, evangelize for you if they if they find the product is remarkable, and so um, we also felt like we had a chance to get a lot of viral marketing, which would be very cost effective, obviously, so, for yeah. a new business like this. And that's so that's what we did. We we launched products that we felt like were were remarkable and added a lot of value, and that were uh, disruptively priced, um, and that led to a lot of early adoption and excitement and viral marketing that we could never have paid for ourselves. Um, we had a, a PR strategy. Um, Amazon 
is is fortunate that um, that people are interested in the company. Yeah, this you had seemed a brand. like yeah. this seemed like a real departure at the time for Amazon, and so mm -hmm. people were very intrigued by this story and, mm -hmm. and, and uh, um, wanted to talk to us about it. Um, we we hired a technology evangelists and. We tried to um, to hire people who, again, who were passionate, but credible, and highly technical, and we really put them on the road. And you know, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Barr, Barr, yeah, you know, really, um, that, yeah. I mean, Jeff has done an unbelievable job and has, you know, been one of the singular voices of AWS. And you know, he really was like a rock star. He's like the Dave Matthews Band traveling yeah. around so so frequently. And and I'd say the same thing for Werner Vogels, who yeah. was our CTO. Uh, you know. Werner had done so many things at the company, and he was really passionate about the change that AWS could have on the world. And he's on the road 200 plus days a year and, yeah, and evangelizing. So that's also very helpful. Um, we did, and, and those guys also blog themselves. And, and then we did a, a number of startup events. We went to um, 10, 15 cities, um, uh, starting in the US and ultimately in other places around the world. Where um, we would do these startup events, where we, you know, we'd have an introduction to AWS, we'd have an evangelist go through the services, and then we'd bring up. Often we'd have a, a VC partner who would talk about um, uh, something interesting about building a company for for startups, and and then we would have four customers who were actually using AWS in that locale get up and do a panel about their experience and take Q and A. That was always, you know, the most compelling part of the day because uh, startups love to see. Proof. You know, peers who are, yeah. who, you know, and so those are some of the things we did early on as we, um, and, and you know, I think the other thing, it was, we didn't necessarily think of it initially as a marketing strategy, but it's tur it turned into one, yeah. which, it didn't turn into a strategy, it just turned into, it's kind of like if you build a remarkable product, you get all this viral um, uh, marketing. This turned into the same thing where we had a real, um, uh, biased for delivering quickly and iterating quickly and trying mm -hmm. to organize ourselves so that we could iterate quickly. And as we kept iterating at a really quick pace, it just, again, it, it drove a lot of um, awareness and publicity and attention. And we were doing it and continue to do it because we think that's what our customers want. And they had right. any number of asks constantly for us, which we you know, uh, dutifully prioritize and then try and crank out for people. But that also created a lot of momentum for us. That's terrific. And what's interesting is, although you said you didn't pursue this MBS you know, strategy, in fact, you really did. You figured out you know, what was the set of customers that had similar needs. And that, interestingly enough, you picked up a point I didn't talk about today, but we do in our class, which is if you can pick a segment that actually is self-referencing, that talk to each other, where when you blog, you know, people refer to it, and they obviously want to be a, you know, in a peer group where they can say they're doing great things and, and talk to their peers and say, well, yeah, but have you tried this? Yeah. It becomes viral, and and you know it develops its own momentum. Yeah, and um, if you don't kind of you know, and the, you have to be careful too because there, there are all these segments like you were talking about in your slide where if you try to build the product to appeal to them right away, you, there's just all these things you have to build that pulled apart. Yeah, it would have made it hard for us to launch quickly. Yeah, so, and that's so. one of the hardest things for people to hear, but actually you just have to resist that temptation because right. it's very easy to say, well, there's another customer here. They want to write us a check, and the next thing you know. Well, we had this strategy which sounded good, but wouldn't have been successful if we hadn't been able to execute on it, which was <clears throat> that we were going to build, um, we were going to pick a line to draw for V1, yep. and which, by the way, that is some of the hardest set of decisions I feel like we make. And 
you know, sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't get it right. But we were, and, and then that set of functionality had to be outstanding. It really yep. had to work and it had to be a set that was meaningful enough yep. uh, that, that would be relevant and uh, powerful in the market. But then we were going to iterate quickly after we heard what customers found was next most important. And that strategy sounds good, uh, but if you don't execute, you actually just have a primitive product. I mean, exactly. when we launched, we launched EC2, there was no persistent storage, there was no monitoring, there was no auto scaling, there was no load balancing, there was no windows, there were no multiple availabilities. I mean, there, it just didn't have any of the basic. features. It was really primitive. And if we hadn't been able to iterate quickly, it just would have been kind of an interesting toy, but not a product that people would build businesses on top of. That's so well said. You also said something interesting, though, that I think um, you know we, we shouldn't miss, which is you actually were applying an agile methodology even to your marketing. You know, it sounded like you had a very quick feedback loop going there too. So even as you went to market, you were learning and figuring out how to move things forward and you know and take best practices and, and spin them for the next iteration of things. Yeah. So let's move on to the last part and then uh, a wrap to bring up our our uh, cloud hatching uh, companies here which is, what was the business model that you, that you picked? Because that can't have been easy either. I mean, there was no such thing as a pricing mechanism, you know, unless you go back to IBM mainframe days and think about, you know, coach, uh, you know, sharing and, and yeah. those kinds of approaches. So, so, so how did you think about that? It's a good question. And, uh, uh, you know, when we wrote the original business plan for AWS, um, and actually when we wrote the vision document, which was the first narrative we wrote on it, it didn't have a financial model which is unusual. We were really trying to, we were trying to get a concept that we thought people would get behind. And yeah. some people very appropriately said, well, this is really interesting, Andy, but there's no financial model in here. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you react to yeah. that, that type of idea. Let's not go there. <laughs> and Actually, we usually don't see financial models in these early stage companies. Yeah, they, that's the last thing they know how to do. And, and what, what I said was, I can go up to the whiteboard and there's four or five levers yeah. that depending on what you believe, I can show you how this can be a million dollar business or a $10 billion business. Yeah. And I, I really truly don't know the answer to what to project. Yeah. And we had gone through this, a lot of these processes at Amazon. Um, we used to have this process um, in the early days that we called NPI. I think it stood for New Product Introduction. Yep. And if you had a project that required resources for multiple development teams, you'd have to go present your idea um, to this NPI committee. And it was right. all the leaders of each of these teams. And it was painful. Uh, this cabal was, was demanding and tough. And, <laughs> And you'd have to project what the M MPV would be. And what we found over time was that these projections were always wrong. Yeah, always. And because uh, it's just so hard to predict. And so we would trick ourselves at, at ideas that seemed really compelling, but the person had been conservative on the MPV projection. And we'd fund ideas that seemed you know, interesting, but maybe not groundbreaking, where the person was aggressive. And, and yeah. you know, you'd get the opposite results. So, we came to believe, you had to believe it could be a big business if you were successful. Yep. Um, and, uh, and so we funded AWS without you know, a, really a, a fully vetted financial model where we said it was going to be X size. We just felt like it could be really meaningful and a, and a, and a big long-term business for Amazon. But then we'd figure out how to price it. And you know, to do pricing, you have to understand what your costs are and you Absolutely. have to understand what the competitive landscape is for mm -hmm. alternatives for your product. Um, and you have to decide whether you, you know, are you trying to build a high margin business or a low margin business that does volume. And you picked that strategy very early. I mean, we did. Am Amazon 
doesn't really have high margin businesses. Right. You know, they, they really, almost all the businesses we pursue are high volume, low margin businesses. And, and we, you know, I, I don't know what's right or wrong. Different companies have philosophies, but we have always been more. But it's consistent, that's what important is. We, we, you know, we, we've been more excited about more absolute margin dollars than the margin percentage. Yeah. Um, and we, we always want, we're trying to build businesses that help the largest number of, of customers. And you, you can, you know, be relevant to more customers if your price is lower than if it's higher. Yeah, so we kind of knew those things. And then, you know, you, we looked at the first set of financial modeling we did, and it was a little daunting because the business that AWS is is really capital intensive. And you have to build out these, you know, one of the advantages for our customers is that they don't have to lay out the capital. Um, they get to, you know, pay a variable expense, but we have to lay out that capital, and we have to build a lot of data centers and buy a lot of hardware and a lot of networking gear in advance of being able to monetize it. And so that, you know, that was a little scary when we were looking at that. And again, we just had this long-term vision uh, that if we were successful, what you see is that it's actually, it's a good business over time. You just have to do a lot of volume to be successful. And uh, so, Taking that long-term approach, we didn't try and we didn't try and uh, break even on the the infrastructure investments, the capital right. infrastructure investments, too early, right. and that was a really important decision because, it, you know, you, it's a new business. There's a number of people internally that feel like this is really different from the rest of Amazon. It's you know, does this really make sense? And you want to actually show success really, you know, as quickly as possible, and you want to break even. You don't want to hurt the company. You know, all those yeah. things. And yet, if we had priced it too high, I think we wouldn't have had nearly the amount of adoption and uh, and virality that we had. And so, we decided that we were going to um, we, we were going to think about this long term, and then we decided that we would price it uh, on a you know a variable pay for what you consume basis, and that really came out of. We just heard so often how much people hated the breakage model and the commitment model, um, especially when they weren't sure if they, they needed that resource, resource for that long, that you know, we thought about it as, well, why don't we just have people pay for whatever they consume? And mm -hmm. you know, if there's some people who say, look, I'm willing to pay, I'm willing to make some commitment to you if I can pay less, and that's also fine, and we have pricing constructs like that as well, but it's not, you know, it's not what we led with. Um, and so, um, that's how we thought about it. We, we, we believed that we would have a sales and marketing team, even though it was tiny when we started, but we always envisioned um, that it would be smaller than what the large technology companies have, and mm -hmm. we'll see over time if we're successfully able to implement that, but we felt like if you were a new shift in a model allows you to try to reinvent the way certain functions operate, and we, we didn't want to spend uh, you know, 25 to 50 percent on sales and marketing. Right. And, and you couldn't so, afford it, probably. Well, we couldn't afford it. We definitely couldn't afford it then. And, and we also just think it's, we want, we want to take all of our, we want our cost structure to be such that we can keep providing lower prices to customers. That's our strategy. You know, in the history of Amazon, it's only recent that we've done any TV advertising for the Kindle business. And uh, you know, we have always felt like the best marketing dollars we can spend is continuing to lower prices for customers. What's interesting about listening to you is, is a couple of things that, you know, we talk about in the class, so I just want to draw them out. I mean, one is that, you, you know, you didn't have a financial model, and I often say this to entrepreneurs, we don't expect you to. It's very hard for anybody to come back 
and develop a five-year plan when they haven't even got their first customer. I mean, let's be realistic. It's just, you know, we, we're not going to do that. And also, you're making a breakthrough by definition if you're doing something truly disruptive. So there is no model for what you're going to do. Otherwise, you wouldn't be innovating. And so we're always okay with that. Part of the point, though, is that you had some very clear assumptions. And, and one of them I think that was very important that you highlighted here is you knew this could be a very big business. So it's one of the things I try to encourage you as entrepreneurs to think about is how can you explain how this can be a big business? How can it, the disruption end up generating a significant amount of value for your customers that ultimately you can translate into a business model for yourself? Yeah. And, and it seemed like you had a clear vision on that and you were very specific about it. So I think that's one of the things that hopefully, you know, as, as you get a chance to talk to Andy and encourage you know, the team to, to uh, look around and think about well, what is it that you could do to evaluate that early on and then test it early on? But I want to underline one last piece of this, which I brought up in the slides, is we don't expect you to have all the answers. I mean, that's just, that's not realistic. You know, if you come with one standout thing, which in this case was this just clear and compelling vision that elastic cloud-based compute was, was obviously going to be a big opportunity, everything else can be worked around that. So, uh, mm -hmm. so thanks for sharing that. Yep. Well, I think this is an appropriate point to say a very uh, big thank you to Andy for not only sharing the AWS vision and, and what he's achieved in uh, seven years with his team and, and with the Amazon support, uh, but also for exposing it here to all of us and, and for us uh, learning. I've learned a lot today, uh, and so thanks very much, Andy. And we're going to take a short break now and then come back and group with our cloud hatching people. But thank you, Andy, very thank much. Thank you. Really appreciate thank it. You.